Support for this podcast is brought to you by Goat Rodeo, a creative audio agency in Washington, D.C. Goat Rodeo helps clients and partners create high-quality professional audio content, translating ideas to sound. Find them at GoatRodeoDC.com. Brand helps you define and redefine culture. It helps you move people in a different way through color, through words, through imagery, through ideas. From A Decibel Media, I'm Megan Rumler, and you're listening to A Decibel Voices, a podcast that features intimate conversations with Asian American trailblazers who all have one thing in common unabashedly pursuing their dreams while transforming the fabric of this nation. From food to business to tech to the arts, this is Asian America, up close and personal. Today, we're talking branding, what it is what it means, how to use it, and the power it wields for both individuals and companies. Our guest is Michael Dumlau, Director of Brand for Booz Allen Hamilton, a U.S. management and technology consulting firm that is considered to be one of the largest and most successful contractors for defense and intelligence agencies today. In this role, Michael leads strategy and activation of the firm's brand ecosystem that included a brand refresh, which has since won leading industry awards for large-scale brand transformation. Michael also chairs Booz Allen's LGBTQ Forum and is a certified executive scholar in marketing management from the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University. Michael Dumlau, welcome to A Decibel Voices. Thank you for having me. Michael, you were born in Manila, Philippines. Then at age seven, you immigrated to Sydney, Australia. And then as a teenager, you moved to Santa Barbara, California, where you ultimately finished high school. Tell us about your parents in childhood and what prompted these events. Yeah, so I was born in the Philippines under the Marcos dictatorship, which is always a fun way to introduce yourself at a party. Um, (laughs) And what is interesting with my family is that I was born to a father that was related to the political regime and a mother who was actively fighting against it, which became a really interesting dynamic in my family and my upbringing because we were living under a family legacy that could have defined us in a certain way. But through my parents, I learned very early on that you can define your direction and what you want to leave behind. I mean, I can still remember stories on TV and in the newspapers um, about the assassination of Nino Aquino. You know, the fact that he was assassinated as he was being escorted from his plane. And then the images of his wife, Corazon Aquino, making speeches and rallying her supporters. And eventually the rise of the people power movement. I mean, that was such an indelible uh, moment in my life that left such a mark just to see a people rise up against their oppressor and to do so mostly peacefully and with such, you know, power and and self-agency. Hearing you tell that to me, I can feel Mm -hmm. the impression that it made. And you were Mm -hmm. quite young. Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, I was born into it. I mean, I think I remember there's a photo of me as a baby with a newspaper with headlines basically about what the Marcos regime was doing, about what the Ninoy Aquino campaign and later the Corazon Aquino uh, campaign, um, you know, how they were rising against uh, the dictatorship. To grow up basically in that environment and, and certainly, you know, growing up in a household that was fighting against it, that was fighting against legacy, that was fighting against, you know, that kind of oppression, 
it sort of informs you, um, you know, informs the rest of my life. So in hindsight, do you think these seeds, you know, mm. uh, the seeds of activism and resistance and, you know, standing up for what you believe in, do you think that that was sown then? Oh, absolutely. I would say it was also, interestingly, the first time in my life that I witnessed firsthand the power of people to decide their own fate. I still remember wearing yellow. Yellow was the uh, color of the people power movement and forming an L with my index finger and my thumb. The L stood for the word Laban, which in Tagalog means fight. And those actions, the color, the messaging, believe it or not, that was probably the first time I discovered the power of brand, right? Mm -hmm. The power of using color and gesture and messaging and words to unite people under an idea. In reflecting uh, about that moment, I realized was that where I discovered really the power of branding? How interesting. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? It's so fascinating. It's interesting that you brought up color. At this very same time that you were being introduced to the power of protest, resistance, and activation, there was another force that entered your life, and that was the force of creativity. Absolutely. To say that your family is baked in creativeness and really leans into creativity probably is an understatement, which was, you know, the reverse of my parents who wanted me, and my dad still actually wants me to be a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> when did you start your formal creative and musical and arts training? I would say out the womb. There's a <laughs> joke in my family that Filipinos in general, but certainly people in my family come out the womb with a karaoke mic. <laughs> Um, <laughs> and I kid you not, most of us have a karaoke list formed by a certain age. In fact, uh, ask any Filipino, and I will put money on this, okay. but you probably have a list on your phone right now of your karaoke songs, your go-to list with, by the way... Stacy is losing her stuff here. She, I wish I could pan the camera. Stacy's just lost it. Okay, what's on your, what's on your list, Michael? One of our classic songs that we do as a duet together is Killing Me Softly. Um, mm, nice. I like to think we did it before Lauren Hill. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and so, yeah, she, that, so that definitely has been a part of my karaoke plays for a long time. From my very earliest days of my childhood, I still remember my mother with her guitar playing songs, almost like, like a human jukebox in all of our family gatherings. My father was an actor, also a singer. And then together, my mom and dad led worship ministry in our churches throughout my entire life. So it made sense that eventually they would enroll me in music, in piano, in voice. I also at some point apparently demonstrated an aptitude for the visual arts. And I think at the ripe old age of five or six, my mother, who at the time was working for the Philippine Development Bank, enrolled me in a summer arts program where I started my training in painting and drawing and sculpting and making um, art um, with my hands. While at home, we learned music. We learned how to uh, play the piano, play the guitar, and harmonize. I mean, I learned how to harmonize from a very, very early age, mostly because I think my mother just wanted to uh, create a family of backup singers. <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, I was the dream girls to her dream girl sort of thing. I feel like I need to meet your mother. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. No, she's a, she's a character. <laughs> From an early age, uh, my parents taught us that we could define our own happiness, which is something that actually I am very, very grateful of. The fact that my parents 
did not succumb to you know the typical Filipino Asian Pacific Islander template of what success would look like. You know, sure, they were pressured by their parents, by their peers, certainly by their siblings, to make sure that their three sons would become the triple success Asian trifecta of <laughs> doctor, lawyer, engineer. Um, you know, the fact that they had three boys, it was like the jackpot, right? <laughs> totally. Not only can you sire the next generations, <laughs> uh, but you can do so under the trifecta of, of success. And so, you know, growing up, the fact that they were actively telling us to pursue the arts and ended up fast forward to having an artist, a musician, a filmmaker as sons and being proud about that, um, right. I think is something that I want to offer to our listeners, you know, that, you know, as Asian parents, you can have children in the arts that are successful. So you were really given the gift and equipped very early on with a set of tools that were really powerful. You make your own destiny mm -hmm. in any way that you want. So really out of the box, out of the womb. Right. So then I'm seeing visually these two worlds of mm -hmm. creativity shaded by the color yellow. <laughs> Absolutely. As well as a world of active resistance starting to meld. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So then around the age of seven, you immigrated to Sydney. Mm -hmm. Tell us what happened. So my family had actually applied, my parents had applied to be American citizens uh, to come to America back in the 70s. They had um, benefited from, you know, several other siblings and relatives that had come to America, um, you know, certainly some generations prior. But there was a moment where America seemed to stem the tide of immigration from certain parts of the world. And an application that would have automatically you know, allowed them to come to America was suddenly halted. And it was actually years later that I found out that it was actually because of me, because my mom had applied as a, uh, as a woman, as a single woman, and then later has applied as a, a wife to my dad. And then I guess during the application process, I sort of ruined her plans by appearing in her womb. And <laughs> all of a sudden, the, uh, the consulate had said, oh, no, since you're a mother now, this is a whole different process, so we've got to change this up a bit. And, uh, and you can't come to America, um, you know, under this, uh, this new pretense. My mom said, yeah, you kind of sort of like ruined our chances of going to America, like at that moment. And so the option was to go to Australia, to join my father's sister, who at the time had um, married and been living with an Australian man in Sydney. And what they offered was, so you can't go to America. Why don't you come to Sydney and, and try a life here in Australia? I still remember telling all my friends in the Philippines, oh, I'm going to America, and then landing there and then saying, oh, this is America, and then seeing my white Australian uncle and him correcting me saying, no, this is Australia. I think my first question to him was, what is that? What is this place? This weird approximation of, <laughs> of America that you know, I was unfamiliar with became basically an adventure for my entire family. Because, you know, you, we had thought to ourselves that we were going to immigrate to America, and instead our entire plans had been rerouted. What was actually originally only supposed to be a few months to a few years um, just to get us to become Australian citizens, to then apply as Australian citizens to then go to America, ended up becoming seven, eight years living um, in Sydney and growing up in Australia. 
A lot of people uh, don't realize this, but Australia became a place of refuge, you know, after World War II, after uh, the Korean War, after what was happening in you know, the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. After Saigon after fell. After Saigon fell, you know. A lot of the world went to Australia to find refuge because in many cases, Australia was the only place that would accept them. You know, so I absolutely do credit Australia as being this incredibly multinational place eventually, um, where I ended up having probably one of the best um, childhoods in the context of, you know, being surrounded by people from so many different walks of life, from people who, like me, were escaping. I was constantly surrounded by people with similar stories, children with similar stories. The fact that they were rebuilding was such a powerful thing, a powerful shared experience. So then, Michael, it almost sounds, I mean, I don't know if this is a reach to say this, but really for the first seven, eight, maybe even nine years of your life, it was immersed maybe by baptism, by fire, Mm -hmm. into really standing up for yourself. Oh, absolutely. Not only having the strength to, you know, be brave and to, you know, muddle through the racism, the xenophobia, the this idea of rebuilding. Mm -hmm. So not only mustering up the strength to do all that, but on top of that, Mm -hmm. having to say, this is who I am, and to do it in a foreign country. Absolutely. I was in Australia from the time that I was seven till until around 13. And around 10 to 11 was when I realized that I may not be entirely heterosexual. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the interesting thing is, you know, where my family found comfort and, and community was in the church, specifically in the Filipino community church. It was a place to find refuge, but it was also a place to build identity and to protect us and, and also to affirm who we are as Filipinos. But interestingly, within that church setting was also where I started to discover the um, inherent toxic masculinity and the homophobia that uh, is very frequently experienced by young LGBTQ people in religious settings. Oh, man, that's lo- so, that's like triple, quadruple loaded. Right, right. So I'm sure there are some listeners out there who can, you know, kind of appreciate the fact that, you know, you're already dealing with, you know, racism and xenophobia and then you, you run to a community that you want to embrace and that you hope would embrace you. But then there's something else inside your identity that keeps you from fully realizing that safety and security. Because the same t- at the same time that they are affirming your Filipino, Asian, Pacific Islander, brown identity, they're also making fun of the fact that you're relatively effeminate that you don't really like sports, um, that you're relatively introverted, but introverted because you're afraid. Um, And also on top of that, Australian culture in general is incredibly masculine, toxic masculine, I would say. So I was grappling with a lot of identity issues, you know. And not only that, I was trying to figure out who I needed to be to fit in. Not just to fit in, but to also survive. I was trying to be white. I was trying to be straight. I was trying to be the good Christian boy that was going to marry a... Filipino girl and start a family. I'm the eldest in my family. So on top of all the pressures, right. you know, I've also expected to, you know, be the the eldest that will carry on the family line, marry a Filipino girl, that will have a, you know, beautiful Filipino babies. It's so much pressure. It's a lot of pressure. It's a lot yeah. of pressure. Yeah. So you're getting internal familial pressure, mm-hmm. external pressure, and your religious pressure. Religious pressure. Yeah, absolutely. So then everybody goes to Sydney yep. at around 13, yep. these middle school years. Yep. And what happens? And then I will never forget this. I come home. 
my mother's home early from work. My dad is on his way home. And my brothers and I are standing there in the living room. She says, sons, sit down. I have some news. She actually didn't call it great news. Hmm. You can tell that she had this sort of measured excitement hmm. because she knew that what she was about to tell us was going to completely uproot our lives again. Mm-hmm. And what she said was, we got some news from the American consulate. We've been approved to go to America. We have to pack up. We have less than a month. We're moving to America. What was interesting is that that is something that my parents had at that point, by that point, waited more than a decade to hear. They finally got the news that the dreams that they once had are now being fulfilled. I mean, to talk about disruption, you know, I mean, I give them a lot of credit, you know, the fact that they were willing to take that risk and now a risk with three children. You a know, lot of mixed emotions. A lot of mixed emotions. This is sort of the point of the story where I started to think through, you know, is this an opportunity for me to escape and run to something. And in many ways, I would say like my early childhood, I was constantly running from something, escaping something. We escaped the Philippines and ran to Australia. And at this point, I was escaping Australia to run to America. I thought to myself, yeah, this is what I needed to do for myself, not that I really had a choice. I remember thinking to myself, okay, well, maybe this is God. This is the universe. This is an external force giving me an out, you know, from all the personal turmoil that I was experiencing. And so we did. We packed up our entire lives and moved once again across the Pacific, across an ocean, to a completely new culture called California, to Santa Barbara, California. Do you remember what your first impression of California was? 90210. (laughs) Absolutely. In fact, actually before this, I will say that we did do a quick visit about two or three years prior. And I was really excited because... I knew that I would get to see Beverly Hills 90210 several seasons, or at least one season ahead. Mm -hmm. Because this is like back in the days when things were not simulcast, you know? (laughs) And so I distinctly remember going to California, being with my cousins, watching 90210 several like episodes ahead or even a season ahead, and then coming back to Sydney with my friends and suddenly being this this sage, this oracle. (laughs) I knew what happened to Brenda and Brendan before they did, (laughs) you know? (laughs) So in my mind, I also was thinking to myself, oh, my God, I'm going to the land of 90210. I'm going to the land of all those rich white people, and I get to live with them. In Australia, we were living with my father's family. In California, we were now living with my mother's family. So that was also a bit of an adjustment, a different dynamic there. But I will say what Santa Barbara gave me was an opportunity to start to really explore who I was. Because the interesting thing about California in the 90s was this was the time of Ellen. This was the time of conversations about LGBTQ youth. And in many ways, I think it forced me to start to grapple with my identity. And, uh, and I would always uh, you know, credit you know, Santa Barbara, California as being the place where those ideas and those thoughts would come to fruition. So I came out uh, when I was 16 years old. Okay. And as with many coming out stories, it was because of a boy. Um, (laughs) always uh, starts with a boy always starts with a boy he was true to who he was he actually had come out um, you know a year prior and funny thing is was I was afraid of him in many ways because he was living his truth what I always sort of marveled at was that he was such a better performer than me you can always tell when somebody especially a performer is confident Mm -hmm. and I think a lot of that stems from knowing who you are as a performer I was afraid of that and jealous of that because I knew that if I wanted to become a 
better actor, a better performer, a better singer, a better musician, a better artist, that I needed to really uncover truths about myself that I was fundamentally afraid of uncovering. So how did you know that at that age? That takes some digging, it takes yeah. insight, it takes reflection, and just a pinch of wisdom. I think part of it stems all the way back to the Philippines, right? All the way back from me reflecting on how I watched an entire people assert themselves, you know, against this oppressive force. It, came, it went all the way back to Sydney, you know, like grappling with racism and xenophobia at a young age and learning how to resist those forces of oppression, whether they be racism, xenophobia, and now homophobia and and misogyny and toxic masculinity and these incredibly myopic ideas of gender and expression. I needed to figure out that for myself. And I think what I needed was a push. And that push was a boy. And that boy challenged me. You know, he said, you're better when you know who you are. I did what anyone would do when somebody, you know, dares you to do something, dares you to be more than who you're presenting, dares you to uncover a truth. It was a really simple moment, really. He dared me to kiss him. And it was that moment where it was like if it was a movie, like, it, like the movie suddenly like went straight into my forehead and it flashed all these images wow. of resistance, of activation, of you know, a people rising to meet their truth. So why couldn't I rise to meet my truth as well? And so in a flash moment, I thought to myself, okay, this is a moment. This is that moment where I decide if I am going to live as I am. And I decided at that moment that I was going to kiss him. And I was, what, 15, 15, 16, mm -hmm. you know? And that's when I decided to realize, you know, this is something that I deserve. I deserve this happiness. I deserve, I deserve to have that teenage love story that everyone else around me was having. Um, so with that kiss, it changed my life. Fast forward, you have this sort of moment that is empowering. Mm-hmm. You go off to... Well, actually, before that, I had to tell my parents. Ah, so let's step back. So let's step back. Oh, my God, I didn't really expect to be telling my coming out story, but here it is. I'm going to tell you my coming out story <laughs> to my parents. I know. We took, we took a, a little detour here. Yeah, okay. So I'm going to do this. Um, We're just so, going to do impromptu yeah. here. So I, uh, I was uh, doing what any good teenager does. I basically borrowed the car, completely lying about where I was going. I said I was going to go to a study group and I was going to do homework with some friends. No, I went to a party. I came back much later than expected, and my mom was like, you weren't answering your pager. Yes, I had a pager. <laughs> I, you know, you were supposed to be back hours ago. You're coming home late. I feel like I don't recognize you anymore. Who are you? Are you doing drugs? <laughs> I, I just love like, that logic. Such right? a classic, classic yeah. parent thing. Yeah, yeah. And, like uh, de devolves. It's like devolves, and suddenly I am a, a Drug, hardened druggy criminal. Druggy, and yes, yes, I'm suddenly a hardened <laughs> criminal on my way to Rikers Island or something. Like it's like okay, mom, calm down. And uh, in you know, in the minute that so like to respond to her, I just said, well, maybe you don't know who I am, mom. You don't know. And she's like, well, I thought you, I, I, I thought you'd have your better influences in your life, I and mean, you have this new friend, and he's such a good influence on you. What happened? And I said, well, he's not my friend, mom. He's my boyfriend. And I'm gay. What? You stepped right into it. You didn't yeah. even give her like a warm up. No. And you know what she said? Well, I'm still mad you borrowed the car. What does that mean? Did she have a... No, she literally was like, Wait. well, I'm still pissed off that you had like, you brought the car back home late. And then she like sort of like record scratch. Wait, what did you say? <laughs> <laughs> record scratch. I was just about to say, did she like I don't think totally... She, realized... she jumped over it. She oh, didn't yeah. even... 
Like it didn't even register. No. All she was thinking about was the fact that I brought home the car late. <laughs> so then she And then eventually she backtracked and she was like, wait, what? And I said, no, mom, I'm gay. And that boy is my boyfriend. And we are together as boyfriends. And, and there was this moment where she had to step back and we had a whole conversation thereafter about how is it a phase? Um, you know, I you know we all have feelings, you know, but I, but, you know, I, you know, but, but this can't, you know, what about the church? What about the family? So she was grappling with it. Oh, oh absolutely. She yeah. was grappling with it. And it, like many coming out stories, it ended in tears. And at the end of it, I said, please don't tell dad. You know, can this just be you and me? Let's talk it through. Let's don't tell dad. She says, fine, I won't tell your father. I go to bed, and I will never forget this. I wake up in my father's arms, rocking me back and forth and saying, I still love you. No matter what happens from here on out, just know that you are still loved. Because I feel like at that moment, he knew immediately the hardships that I would go through. Mm -hmm. Um, Not just as a gay man, but as a gay immigrant of color, right? He knew that there was going to be, um, that my life moving forward was never going to be the same and specifically that it was going to be difficult. If my family ever listens to this, I mean, you have really no choice and you are going to listen to this. I'm just <laughs> going to tell you, thank you so much for opening your hearts, for opening your minds and for accepting me and having had the difficulty given the upbringing that we had to prove to the world that you are not your upbringing necessarily, right? That you don't have to only be what your culture and um, generations of expectations expect you to be, that you can change and that you can learn to love and accept people in very, very powerful new ways that ultimately I think makes for a stronger family. I would then enroll in UC Santa Barbara and then through an opportunity to do a year abroad, I decided to go back home. Remember when I kept saying that I was escaping things? Yes. This was the time when I thought, you know what, rather than escape, why don't I run to? And this is when I realized that Sydney may be a place for me to run towards rather than escape. And going back to Sydney to reacquaint myself with my family there, to reacquaint myself with a culture that had in many ways caused me quite a lot of pain and turmoil you know, in my childhood, I wanted to reclaim that. I wanted to reclaim that city and that place and that culture. I would spend a year in Sydney University honing my craft as a photographer and videographer and filmmaker in Sydney College of the Arts. I would also enroll in two programs, which actually I would say were very, very formative for me. One was the Sydney University Drama Society, and the other one was the Queer Student Union. And both the Queer Student Union and the Sydney University Drama Society both really honed this idea that I could really use the arts to inform my activism. And it helped me understand how, as an actor, performer, musician, and artist, I could use that to to affect change, to find a voice. And I used all those experiences to really understand what it meant to create change, to articulate a message, and to do so in a really powerful, creative way. I would then take that, come back to UC Santa Barbara, and graduate from UC Santa Barbara. And in that moment, I was then forced to think about what I was going to do next. And this is probably where the next major crossroads in my life came. Um, And that was when I was offered two opportunities. One was to go into entertainment in LA. The other one was to pursue my activism and end up working for 
the Democratic National Committee, um, specifically the Al Gore presidential election, and actually many of the other Democratic elections in the year of 2000, and instead move completely cross-country. Now I was making a choice to move myself from California to the East Coast, to New York City, to New Jersey, and eventually to D.C. And I'm always really grateful, actually, to my parents because I got into my little 1997 Nissan Sentra and at that moment said, you know what, I can either drive south to L.A. and live the rest of my life there, or I can drive, drive by myself cross-country um, to New Jersey and New York and see what happens. And that's what I did. I drove cross-country and have been on the East Coast ever since. We'll be right back after this word from our sponsors. This podcast is brought to you by our sponsors, 8 Media Group, a Washington, D.C. area video production company whose mission is to create, collaborate, and resonate. Find them at 8mediagroup.com. If you're just joining us, we've been talking with industry branding veteran Michael Dumlau, who is currently serving as Booz Allen Hamilton's Director of Brand. Booz Allen is a Fortune 500 global technology firm that specializes in management and information technology consulting for the federal government. Michael has held this post since 2015 and has since led the company's brand pivot, which includes landing industry awards like the PRSA Silver Anvil and Gartner for large-scale brand transformations. Michael, there are so many definitions of what brand means, from selling ideas to encapsulating values to even representing relationships between consumers and companies. In your opinion, in the most simple terms, what does brand mean? Brand is a promise. It's a promise that you make as a person. It's a promise that an organization makes to deliver something whether that's a product, a level of service, um, an idea, to someone in a specific place and time. And I think that's where brand really becomes powerful is that level of specificity, right? Defining what it is that you promise to deliver consistently and then promising to do that to a specific audience and then understanding how best to do that in the context of how that audience wants to receive that brand. Brand is also a shortcut. When you go to the grocery store, because of your lived experiences, what you're taught, um, what you see, what you reach for, whether you know it or not is informed by your either intellectual or emotional connection to a brand. It can be as simple as packaging, or it can be as complex as your appreciation for a level of quality or a price right? Or just something you know inherently because it's what your mother taught you or it's what a teacher taught you, right? It's, it's emotional, uh, but it's also very scientific. Something that I've always been fascinated about with brand is that it is really both an art and a science. Where brand breaks is when the promise breaks, right? When you pick up something expecting something and that expectation is broken in some way, which is why recovering your reputation, recovering your brand is so difficult because nobody likes to have their trust broken, which is why I think there's such a huge investment in brand, um, in corporations, and increasingly personally amongst people, right? Because you want to make sure that uh, you're trustworthy. You know, you brought up the the word corporations. Mm -hmm. So then what does it mean right now for corporations and for individuals? What does brand mean? I feel like in many ways, our price of entry for living in a hyper-connected world 
where all of our actions are archived and our privacy and secrecy is really up to debate these days, it seems, that there's a greater pressure to be authentic, right, for both individuals and corporations. By living your truth, you're doing so not just for yourself, but to create a space for others to do so. And I feel that's particularly true of branding as well. It's really hard, I think, for anyone, especially a corporation, um, to hide right behind um, something false because we are all empowered as consumers, as clients, um, to do research, right? To to call things into question. Particularly, you know, before the age of social media, it was all about controlling the message. But I can tell you that in my career, uh, especially with the increasing use of social media and the advent of big data and, frankly, the increasing absence of privacy and secrecy when it comes to this world. Um, it becomes that much more important to just be transparent and to be authentic and to really stand for something. And actually, if anything, that's another thing that is going to be increasingly important to many corporate brands is to stand for something, to have an opinion on something beyond what it is that you sell and what you offer. You know, for the longest time, all us marketers wanted to do was to control the message, to control perception. But you really can't do that in an environment where everyone is their own personal broadcaster. Everyone um, is able to form an opinion and help inform others' opinions about something. One of the key rules of branding is that brand is not what you say you are. Brand is what they say you are, right? It's people's perceptions of and their trust, right, in who you are that really makes your brand. Now, can you shape it? Sure. You know, can you influence it? Absolutely. You know, can you help drive the conversations? Great. Yes. Can you control it? Absolutely not. You know, and I think that's something that keeps brands accountable because it means that if you're going to say something, you've got to make sure that you can back it up, right? If you're going to stand for something, and increasingly brands are asked to stand for something, to have an opinion on something beyond just an opinion on the quality of their industry or the quality of their products. But now it's like, how does that product or that industry affect the livelihoods of its workers? How does it impact the lives of its communities, right? How does it make the world a better place or doesn't? Those questions are starting to be asked of corporate brands because people realize that brands, in many ways, it governs our lives in ways that I think people are much more smart um, and much more aware of how that happens and how that's engineered. And so in many ways, there's a greater respect and expectation for transparency and authenticity. Speaking of transparency and authenticity, mm-hmm. you know, you mentioned the pervasive use of social media and you know, technology that is really kind of peeling back the curtain Absolutely. on our lives. So then how does one tell the difference or is there a difference between personal branding and corporate branding? I am of the belief that there is no difference, that I have come to believe that the basic principles and best practices of corporate branding, of any kind of branding enterprise, applies whether or not you're, you're, you know, doing it to affect the brand of a corporation, an organization, or yourself. I have a principle um, of analyze, articulate, and activate. I call it the three A's of branding. And I feel like it definitely applies. You know, the ideas around positioning and targeting, knowing who your audience is, tailoring a consistent message um, to your audience on the channels at the right time, you know, understanding what their wants, needs, desires, motivations are. 
and whether or not you're talking about your own brand or that of a Fortune 500, all of those principles still apply. I think it's also about intention and about purpose uh, and being open, you know, to to curating, you know, who you are, both as a company and as a brand. In fact, lately I've been thinking that if I were to have my own Netflix show, that I would be, you know, Marie Kondo meets Queer Eye. <laughs> um, that like Marie Kondo, I would, you know, help either an individual or a corporation, you know, understand what is distracting you, you know, from being your true authentic being. What doesn't give you joy. What doesn't give you joy, what doesn't give you truth, right? And that you thank it and then you donate it to Goodwill. Um, <laughs> and then everything else you, you keep, I help, you know, you structure and, and fold up, you know, into a way that is easily discoverable. And then the Queer Eye part is that I, you know, basically, you know, make you over. <laughs> uh, and I feel like that many, many brand directors and brand managers have that role, right? We have the Marie Kondo role of clarifying and curating. And then we have the Queer Eye role of helping you be the best part of yourself. Are there any other, you know, core kind of grounding um, emotional connections? Absolutely. I think it's about empathy and inclusion. I think at the very core of good branding, it's having this empathy for your users. First of all, identifying who they are, knowing who they are. Which is tough. That's very, a very tough, tough task. Right. Um, another key part of branding is positioning and targeting, right? There is a very key decision that one must make when you are deciding your brand in that you have to decide who you are not, who you are not good for, what you are not, right? The, the understanding of the not is as important as understanding the what is. You cannot be everything to everyone. You have to be perfect for someone, right? And, and I think part of that is this really disciplined approach to understanding the fact that you can't be everywhere at once, you can't talk to necessarily everyone at once, that you really have to focus, you know, who you are as a brand, you have to focus your message. You know, for Booz Allen and for many brands, you know, one of the major areas of self-definition is whether or not you are a house of brand or a branded house. And let me explain that. Mm. Right? A house of brands um, are those entities where you sell different kinds of experiences, different kinds of products mm -hmm. to different kinds of people. You have different value propositions, you have different marketing strategies, but you all live under one company versus a branded house where you have a consistency, right, in your messaging. It's like Apple, right? All the packaging, all the messaging, all the brand identity within Apple is very, very consistent versus, you know, a company that owns both, say, you know, Cheetos and a soda drink, for example, you know, that, you know, those may exist in one, um, you know, house of brands with very, very different ways of selling that idea and that product to different kinds of people, you know, versus something like an Apple, where it is really all about one consistent idea that you are helping people adopt and form a emotional bond with. That was certainly true of Booz Allen. You know, we were asking ourselves, are we going to be a house of brands where we were selling different kinds of capabilities um, in different ways to different kinds of people? Or, and this is what we ultimately decided, was that we were going to be a singular branded house, you know, with a singular expression, articulating a, a, a unified idea and a unified message. Brand helps you define and redefine culture. Um, it helps you move people in a different way through color through words through imagery through ideas um and 
I feel like that's where also where personal and corporate branding also starts to converge. You know, it's this idea that, you know, by carrying through this idea of excellence and inclusion, you know, you can really make the world a better place. I want to congratulate you on your recent industry awards. Thank you. Can you explain to our listeners, you know, you, you've won some really large industry branding mm-hmm. awards. What does winning these mean to you? Well, first of all, it wasn't me alone, right? I think one thing that's also very key to branding and a really, really good brand enterprise is that it involves a lot of different perspectives, a lot of different people, that there is an entire team that builds and sustains, thrives, and pushes a brand. You know, another key thing about branding is that it has to be resourced. You know, it cannot just rely on one person alone, that a brand, for it to live on um, beyond the launch, um, it has to understand data, understand how data can be continuously measured. It has to understand how it can evolve, you know, based off of all those metrics. And so, these awards, if anything, it recognizes what happens when you properly resource a brand, when you bring the right team and the right mindsets, when you follow best practices. You know, credit is due where it needs to be due, and that is the leadership that brought uh, an entire team together, of which I was part, to really, really think through all the different aspects of what branding requires, from metrics and research, to employee engagement, to digital strategy, to creative, to content and design. A lot of people have an assumption that all branding is is logos, color, and typography. Right. Right? And that's a very important part of it. You know, that's what we touch, what we see. And there's a very sensorial part you know, of brand, you know, the best brands out there absolutely hit all five senses. To get to that kind of powerful brand that really hits all five senses, you have to bring research, you have to bring strategy, you have to bring a a context um, and a true understanding of the audience, you know, and the contexts in which they will receive and adopt and experience your brand. And that requires a whole lot of people at the table. Michael, when you think about your career Mm. and you reflect upon the nuances of brand as it exists today, what do you think the future of branding is for for both, if you wouldn't mind talking about for both individuals and for corporations? Absolutely. One thing I've started thinking about is this idea of audacious authenticity, you know, what it means to really live your truth, to be truly free, to be who you are, and what that means not just for yourself, but also for a brand, right? To be truly, completely honest and authentic in, in your messaging, in your approach, in the audiences that you reach, right? I think what's also going to be very, very true to the future of branding is, is the idea of a, a radical diversity of sorts mm-hmm. tied to that audacious authenticity, to know that... You know, you cannot be exclusive. You really have to be inclusive in your brand moving forward. You have to challenge binaries. You have to challenge the black and whites. You have to accept the fact that there are going to be grays, new frontiers, new identities. And I think that's also part of the inclusionary nature, um, you know, of, of what branding has to be moving forward. And the idea that, you know, you have to be very fluid. I think you have to assume that much like identity is today, that brand has to be fluid, that brand has to be agile, it has to be responsive. So ultimately, what is 
the power of branding today in our society, in our culture? What's at stake? Branding for a lot of folks is a shortcut. You know, it's it can be seen as a cultural hieroglyph of sorts. Hmm. You know, um, when you see a logo, you know, when you see, um, you know, a, a message, when you see a person, right, your brain automatically thinks through all the different sorts of associations, you know, that you make with that image, with that sound. And, and that's all based off of the lived experience that you have with that brand. I think... That is something that will continue. But I think what people also have to realize is that people know that. And I think increasingly as uh, future generations become more fluent in how brand is engineered, it requires us who manage brands to be even more empathetic you know, to their needs, to their behaviors, to their preferences, to their incentives, to their motivations. For us to be able to continue to provide value to not only our clients, but to the basically the lives, you know, of our fellow human beings. We have to be open to change, right? While being very intentional and purposeful in helping to create that change. Michael Dumlau, it has been such a pleasure having you here in the studio. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. This has been absolutely cathartic. Michael Dumlau serves as the Director of Brand for Booz Allen Hamilton, a global leader in engineering, cyber data science, and management consulting, where he leads brand research and strategy. Michael is also a published author and sought-after speaker on personal branding, inclusive marketing, brand activation, and digital strategy, and serves as a faculty member of the Institute for Federal Leadership, where he teaches strategic communications for leaders in the federal government. Here's a special note to our listeners to make sure to check out our website at adecibel.com. That's A-D-E-C-I-B-E-L dot com. There, you'll find extended interview excerpts that you won't want to miss, behind-the-scenes photos, and some pretty hysterical outtakes. A Decibel Voices is hosted by me, Megan Rumler, and co-produced and edited by myself and Stacey Yu. All music is sourced royalty-free. Join us next week as we speak with Lena Jaiswell, a documentary filmmaker and award-winning photographer. Lena's films have been broadcast throughout the country on over 100 PBS affiliates, and her work features deep expertise and interest in issues that intersect race, representation, and identity. Lena is currently co-directing and co-producing a feature-length documentary titled Mixed, a film that explores both the meaning and experiences of being mixed-race in America 50 years after the historic 1967 Loving v. Virginia Supreme Court decision that made interracial marriages legal in the United States. Be sure to tune in. Hey, it's Stacy here. Since we're a brand new podcast, we need your help. Send us your feedback. We want this podcast to be listener-centered and would love to hear from you. What do you like? not like, or wish you could hear more of? Is there an Asian American trailblazer whom you want us to interview? Tell us what you think. Call or text us at 202-599-3318. Leave your full name, contact info, age, and where you're from. Messages are recorded, so who knows? Maybe you'll hear yourself on our show. Thanks for listening, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.